This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for September 23rd, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this week, the official death toll around the world approached 1 million, and deaths in the United States have gone past 200,000. So it's a time to take stock. Let's take a step back and look at what's changed since the disease was first reported eight months ago. What have we learned in that time? Steve, I guess I'd start out by acknowledging what an incredible tragedy this has been. And it's been a tragedy that's been exacerbated by mistakes. But I think it's worth starting off with the other side of the message. This is the Jewish season of reflection. And I think that it's important to get across the idea that a crisis like this has brought out the best in many people. Um, it's shown how people can be resilient and really brave in the face of a disaster. Lindsay and I are physicians and we've seen our colleagues taking care of patients throughout the crisis at real risk to themselves. And they've had to sacrifice their own career goals, their own training goals in order to switch over just to take care of COVID-19 patients. And they've really done this willingly, happily. I think that they've really felt like they uh, were providing care that was important to these people. And the risks that they take are much smaller than the risks to the nursing staff and other caregivers who spend a lot of time in patient rooms. And remember, at the beginning of this outbreak, we didn't know how to control infection in the hospital. And there were many examples from early on, especially in China, but as a disease spread of people who were getting infected in hospital settings. And so you really have to salute these people. And it's not just in the hospital. There are the staff at nursing homes, there are first responders, and then there are all the people who take care of us in general. The whole food supply chain required people to be working during the lockdown from the farm all the way to the grocery store. And again, these people didn't really know the risks that they were encountering at the time. And it was at a time when there were very high rates of infection in certain areas. And then researchers have been working through the pandemic and pretty much everything we know about the disease and the countermeasures that we do have so far come from them. So I think this is a good time to express our gratitude to the people who've done this work and for all the sacrifices that people have made and are continuing to make. It is worth reflecting that a year ago, we had no idea that this virus existed. The world was a different place. And I can't share your sentiment enough that the frontline workers, you know, when this pathogen emerged and we didn't even know it existed, we didn't know what it was, we knew nothing about transmission, disease severity, early physicians and healthcare workers who initially described this not only contracted it and succumbed to the illness, and even recently, healthcare workers are succumbing to illness with COVID-19, that over the last 10 months, the community has rallied to take care of patients, to take care of each other, particularly in the healthcare environment with all of the uncertainties early on and the limited resources that we had to protect ourselves in the hospitals and elsewhere. I think it's been uh, very inspiring for all of us and has created a camaraderie that is, you know, hopefully reinvigorates why we went into healthcare 
and how to work together as teams in our fundamental mission of taking care of each other. And so I salute all of the healthcare workers and others who have continued to do their jobs in the face of this spreading pandemic with uncertainty as to transmission, their own risk, severity of illness, while we generate the knowledge to understand how to move forward and to really defeat this bug. So thank you all. So you mentioned transmission. Let's look at that. What do we know about transmission? What have we learned that can help reduce the spread of this disease? Well, at this point, this looks like other respiratory viruses in that there are multiple possible routes of transmission. It seems likely that the primary route is droplets. These are large particles that can be transmitted to people who are standing relatively close to someone who is infected. And that's very important because most of our control measures have focused on droplet transmission. And we know that two measures work for that, social distancing and masks. And epidemiologic evidence suggests that even imperfect masks can provide protection against disease, not complete protection, but moderate amounts of protection, which is extremely important. We know the virus can land on surfaces and persist there, but it's unclear if these fomites are very important in spreading infection. And it's likely that under some circumstances, aerosols can spread infection, though this is probably not a common route, but it might be important, especially in super spreading events where a number of people get infected at a single time. And it might be important increasingly in parts of the world that are getting colder right now as people head indoors, and that's where aerosols are most likely to be transmitted. So I think there are important consequences to what we know right now. One is that straightforward public health measures work, separating people who are infected or potentially infected by quarantine and isolation, social distancing, masking, contact tracing, all of these by themselves have been extremely effective in some places in bringing down the rate of infection. And the more rigorously they're instituted, the more likely they are to work. The one other piece of biology that we've learned is an unfortunate one, which is that transmission occurs early in infection. In fact, most transmission likely occurs from asymptomatic individuals or pre-symptomatic individuals who aren't showing any signs of disease yet and therefore don't know that they're infected. And since we can't easily identify those people, it makes control a lot more complicated. I mean, I think that, Eric, as you summarize eight months worth of knowledge and science for us to reflect back in January, February, when it was unclear how transmission occurred. And what's occurred over the last six, seven months are systematic studies that enable us to understand the degree to which there can be viral replication in the oropharynx when individuals are not yet sick or never become sick, and then different modes with which these potentially infectious viral particles can then be spread, as you mentioned, aerosols uh, versus droplet, and also some of the epidemiologic data that shows that through basic public health interventions, such as distancing, mask wearing, hand washing, transmission can be dramatically decreased. And I think that's a testament to the scientific process, generating systematic data, and learning from natural experiments. 
And that's really important for us to understand how to protect ourselves and each other and to use these data thoughtfully. I think another point that you bring up, Lindsay, is sort of the evolution of the science behind the understanding of the disease. We started out at the very observational level and we've progressed over time to a more systematic approach to understanding disease. And that continues to yield not only new insights, but I think more importantly, more concrete insights that we can have a lot of confidence in. And so I think that encouraging that high quality investigation is really important going forward. And the repeatability, which is sort of implied in your comments, Eric, but that different groups in different ways are asking similar questions and finding consistent results. And that allows us to increase our confidence in the biology that's being understood and then the actionable nature of that biology that we can reduce to practice. And I think that is part of our goal is to iterate, improve our understanding and then apply it in a way that you know, leads to benefit. And in this case, decrease transmission or severity of illness. The fact that asymptomatic and presymptomatic people can transmit this disease makes testing for it all that much more important. So where does testing stand at this point in the pandemic? Well, for now, the most important tests are those that can identify those people that you're talking about, Steve, those that are capable of transmitting. For that, the go-to test remains nucleic acid amplification tests, usually using RT-PCR. It's clear that these aren't perfect tests, but they do work, and there has been some progress in making them more accessible, particularly using samples other than the deep nasal swabs that were used entirely originally because they require a skilled worker to obtain the tests. And now we're using more accessible samples like shallow nasal swabs or saliva that can be done by individuals without any help, and in fact, some of them can be done at home. But here in the U.S., these tests still remain very difficult to access, and we're not doing enough testing, not even close to enough testing, and that's because the tests are largely unavailable. On top of that, these tests are complicated, they're expensive, they take time to do, and because there's a backlog, the results are coming in in many places too late to actually act upon. So we're still not there, and I think it's stunning that we still are unable to test at the scale we need to do to limit transmission effectively. Now, there are other tests out there that might help. And the ones that are particularly interesting are those that are point of care, where you can get relatively fast answers before a patient leaves the testing site. Now, many of these use antigen testing, and antigen testing we know is less sensitive than nucleic acid amplification, and so it might not be the right test in some settings. However, it might provide in the right settings a way to reduce transmission overall. And then there are new formats that might help, and one of the big advantages of using other formats of tests is that they use different reagents and different supplies, and therefore they might get around some of the supply chain issues which have limited our use of RT-PCR. I think we should also mention that another set of tests, the serologic tests, are much more widely available now. Their place is still not clear because we don't know two things. First off, the performance characteristics of each test vary quite considerably. But more importantly, we don't know the significance of a true positive. If you do have antibody, does that mean you're protected or how protected are you? 
we still don't know that. So it's difficult to know how to use these tests appropriately at this point. So Eric and Steve, what's been exposed with the SARS-CoV-2 rapid spread and particularly the asymptomatic transmission, as you point out, there's testing capacity where the state-of-the-art testing in many micro labs is 1950s technology with culture. And as we move to molecular tests, do we increase the capacity to be able to apply them as we need for different infectious diseases, new infectious diseases, and then how do we go to scale for the community need for a given test? And I think the national testing capacity is not where we need it or want it to be, and it's something worth reflecting on as a community, which of course will speak to, as Eric said, the supply chain, so our testing using all the same reagents or different reagents, and what the economics are of testing. But I think of testing as our radar, and how do you work an airport without radar? How can you manage an infectious disease without radar to know if it's present, and where is it spreading? Then there's the issue of testing application, which is, is it being used for a medical diagnostic purpose, or is it being used as a social or public health use, such as contact tracing or how to diminish community spread through surveillance? And then what the public perception is of testing, you know, whether it's serology for past infection or nucleic acid or antigen for acute infection, and that testing is not a bad thing and a positive test is not a bad thing, but rather these are tools to inform us to better diagnose and control spread of a novel pathogen. And whether it's SARS-CoV-2 or the next infection of concern, do we have the national and international infrastructure to identify early and to scale up the diagnostics so that we can better understand transmission dynamics as early as possible before things become endemic and then much harder to control? I think we've talked about this before. But what would really change things is that we took the hospital lab completely out of the picture and we had a test that could be done right at site by anybody quickly and cheaply. This is kind of a holy grail, but think about what a difference it would make if children could be tested on their way into school and employees could be tested on their way into work and decisions could be made right there. We're not there yet. There are technologies which might be able to do that. But this should be a priority right now. And I think it hasn't been prioritized to the extent that it should be. How do we develop a test that we trust? And how do we apply that test? And I think this is an opportunity for us as a community to reflect on what we need as a community in general and in specific. And I agree, Eric, a point of care test with a rapid turnaround, testing that gives a result a week later is useful for counting statistics retrospectively, not useful for delivering care or intervening to stop transmission. And so point of care tests or tests with rapid turnaround are critical, deployed where we need them. But I do think this is an opportunity for us as a community to reflect on how do we invest in capacity for the kinds of problems that we're likely to face and do we have the resiliency and the resources to be able to address them quickly. And we currently have not yet risen to the challenge for COVID. Over these eight months, we've clearly had a lot of experience with treating patients with COVID-19. How has treatment changed as the pandemic develops? 
certainly appears that we're getting better at treatment. It's very difficult to come up with reliable numbers for anything, and therefore it's hard to calculate how many people who are infected go on to die, except in very restricted circumstances and areas. But it feels like the death rate is dropping, and there are probably several factors involved. One important one is that we're getting better at managing disease using the straightforward supportive care measures that we use for other illnesses. We've just become more familiar with this disease and therefore we can get better at managing things in the ICU or in a hospital bed, for example. So supportive care has probably improved considerably and I think that is likely to have had a big impact. We also have some specific interventions, and they've helped us both understand the biology of disease and also uh, treat patients. Relatively early in disease, when viral replication is at its peak, we have an antiviral drug, remdesivir, which does seem to improve clinical outcomes of patients. And later in disease, when there's a massive inflammatory response that's driving the pathology of disease, the corticosteroid dexamethasone can decrease the death rate. Each of these have relatively small effects, so neither of them is a home run, uh, but given the number of patients, they can really have an impact on the death rate overall and might be contributing to the better outcomes that we're seeing. There are other drugs being tested at both early and late time points that could also make a difference, but we don't have the magic drug that's safe enough and effective enough to use in presymptomatic and asymptomatic patients that might have an impact on transmission. I guess I'm spending our time together reflecting on the road we've traveled over the last eight months. And we've come a long way in treatment, but I think we need to take a hard look at how we did that. And the desperation that we as a healthcare community were in to do something for our patients and repurposing drugs for treatment that had signals of activity in some model occurred. You know, hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine's an example. And we all were faced with, myself included, with incredibly sick patients and no treatment options. And we deployed the treatments that were available or that we had access to, whether or not we had data that it actually worked. And I think one of the lessons for me over the last eight months is the importance of high quality data and our ability to generate high quality data, or at least moderate quality data, in a emergency crisis situation. And without it, uh, hope is terrific, but I need to know if this treatment will help my patient or hurt them. And I need to know that in an unbiased way. And I think we all need to take a look at our biases, some of which drive the research, but there's still biases and look to the high quality data through randomized trials that allow us to determine which of the things we want to work do work or don't work. So I would, Steve, reflect on the value of randomized controlled trials and high quality data and the ability to conduct these studies with our patients in mind first during this incredible crisis. And I hope as we learned with Ebola years ago, with SARS-CoV-2 now, that it is possible to generate quality data that allows us to know what does or doesn't work. And in the end, that's the best way that we benefit our patients. And we have to manage the uncertainty of desperation with the hope of a new potion that may or may not be helpful.
it's impossible to criticize people for doing the best they can. And I think as Lindsay points out, when we were managing patients, we were all faced with lots of unknowns and therefore made a lot of guesses. Um, and this was true, not just with managing individual patients, but with setting health policy broadly. But I would reiterate what Lindsay said. It's clear one of the lessons we can take away from this is that our guesses aren't that good. And when we rigorously test something, we find real answers. And I think it's extremely important to do that work and to rely on that work and to believe what comes out of it rather than believing what you want to going in. You have to get into this in a relatively unbiased fashion. That has been an issue. It continues to be an issue around some hoped for cures and treatments. And I think we want to be careful about sending the consistent message that science, research, clinical research really matters. And it does give you real answers. So you talked about a holy grail. And in many places that have been unable or unwilling to institute the kind of public health measures that can make an impact on this disease, a successful vaccine is that holy grail. We know there's a lot of vaccine testing going on. What do the prospects look like at this point? So I guess I'd say that there's a lot of early good news, but a substantial caveat behind that. We know that there are several vaccine strategies that have been tried, and many of them produce the sorts of immune responses that we guess would be protective against disease. There is some animal model data suggesting protection, but the animal models are pretty imperfect. And there are now four large studies underway as of an announcement today that are ongoing. And apart from one clinical hold that has already been lifted for one of the trials in the UK, we haven't heard much about large safety signals. And that's good news. It means that there's nothing jumping out at least at early time points from a fair number of patients. So that's good. That doesn't mean it's going to turn out to be safe, but it's better than the alternative. And the other thing that's good news is that all of these vaccines are being scaled up for protection so that in case they turn out to be safe and efficacious, we can get access to these much more rapidly than we could if we waited until we knew the answer. So that's all good news. But the big problem, the elephant in the room, is that we don't know if the responses that we're seeing actually will protect against disease. And if it does protect, we don't know how effective it will be. Despite some assurances to the contrary, it's likely that it's going to take a while to find out, particularly if the vaccines aren't 100% effective at preventing infection. There are lots of successes short of that, very effective vaccines don't necessarily have to be 100% efficacious. And a vaccine that protected against severe disease, even if it didn't protect perfectly against infection, would be incredibly useful. But looking at those endpoints takes a lot of patience and it's going to take a while. And then finally, although there's been a lot of early scale up, once a vaccine is approved, it's still going to take a very long time many months until there's enough vaccine to go around for everyone who needs it. And then the last issue I'd mention is that part of the planning for vaccines has to include their adoption after they're approved. And that requires planning and laying out the groundwork for logistics and distribution. 
and importantly, instilling confidence in the public that the vaccines really do work and will be safe. And I think thus far, we haven't done a great job on the latter. We're not helping the public understand the process and understand why they should believe in vaccines. In fact, in many cases, we're doing just the opposite. So I think we still have our work cut out for us, even apart from the testing that's going on. I mean, I think, Eric, as you point out, there are so many questions in this space. But fundamentally, we need to know if it works. And the only way to know it works are high quality data in us, in all of us. And those studies are ongoing. And there'll be two critical readouts. How well does it work? And is it safe? Each of those have multiple key elements. What does efficacy mean? And we have to think carefully before we jump to the conclusion that it works is really defining, as you suggest, Eric, is it transmission or is it disease? And what does that look like? And what kind of safety database have we generated? Yeah, I can say right now, nobody knows what the durability of immunity and natural infection is beyond a year. Nobody's made it to a year post-infection. So there are so many questions about safety, immunogenicity, protection that we won't know, but we need to ensure that we have enough data that we as a community can make a sound judgment about the risk benefit ratio and the potential utility in our communities. And that can only be done with unfettered high quality science that is then reviewed by independent bodies and discussed amongst the community in a transparent fashion, scientifically and the general community. Otherwise, we'll fail at the goal line, as you suggest, Eric, where we have a vaccine that may be terrific, but nobody trusts it. And that's something that we have to really think about as a community is how do we engage our community in discussing what safety and efficacy mean so people trust that the vaccine makes sense for them. Because if people don't take it, then it is for naught. So I hope over the next uh, weeks to months that a transparent discussion can continue to allow us all to feel comfortable with the march towards, as Steve, you say, the holy grail and a safe and effective vaccine. Putting this another way, there are things we have control over and things we don't. We can't control whether or not the vaccines are going to work. All we can do is do the best job we can of testing them. But we can control the message. We can control how well we let people know what is being done and why they should believe in what's being done. And so it's extremely important to take that rather simple step. And I think there has been some movement toward that, but there has been very mixed messaging and we really should be doing a better job of that. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.